You're listening to the Doxology and Theology Podcast, where we promote, encourage, and equip gospel-centered worship. For more information, visit us at doxologyandtheology.com. The um, theme that has been given to me strikes to the core of my heart. For me personally in my own journey, but also for you remarkable women and men, I just want to take a moment to look at all of you and bless you and thank you for what you do. You are stewards of the worship of the triune God. You are called to be those who are growing in your own sense of gospel astonishment so that you are lead worshipers before you are worship leaders. And the very calling you have makes you a target for spiritual warfare because the greatest battle in history and in, our, and in our hearts is who will assume the dominion that is alone reserved rightfully, lovingly, adoringly for our God. So thank you. Thank you. I would fully anticipate that some of you among the 600 plus here this weekend uh, are, are coming with wounds and longings and hurts, wondering if you even want to drive back home. Because a part of that warfare gets very intense relationally. So I, I pray that you will drop whatever pose might make you think you need to be as competent as anybody else. I pray that into the night, through the day, that you will grab friends and spend time praying for each other and encouraging one another and all the more as we see the great day of Jesus approaching, for which we long. Now, in terms of the context of these five solas, I was so appreciative for the word we heard this afternoon by one of the great gospel warriors in our culture and day. So thankful for hearing again and afresh with so much clarity and passion that only the Bible claims the right and indeed has the right to speak for God. And the segue in tonight to the next of the five solas, grace alone, it fits like this. Now, I'm not suggesting that doxology and theology changes their brand or their t-shirts or their cups, but in many ways, the order should be theology and doxology because it is the word of God and what it says and claims to be true, that alone propels us into doxology. And you can think of it like this. What is the relationship between the informed mind and the inflamed heart? Taking the Bible very seriously, really believing that God has spoken and he has not stuttered in his word as J.I. Packer said. To take that assumption, to see that the Bible's own affirmation is that this is the Word of God and uniquely so, but building on that and beginning to listen to it, it says a lot of things that if they are true, they are not just game changers, they are everything changers. And so a worship leader shaped by grace is going to be a theologian. Because the only basis upon which we can speak with any sense of confidence, the only basis upon which we can really hold forth for our hearts and our communities and our world, 
The good news of the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, the good news that God is a God of all grace is because God says it is so. Two people in scripture tonight stand out to me as great models of this informed mind and inflamed heart. The informed mind accepting the cathedral of the word of God declaring to us, this is my son, see him, know him, love him. Those who understood that great theology and then showed us, here's the radical response, here's the doxological redefinition of life. I think of John the apostle tonight, before we come to Paul the apostle, as great models to us of what a lead worshiper is, Two men, two brothers that give us a rich theology of grace but show us the doxology of grace. Think about John the Apostle in his 80s and I love the fact that he's an octogenarian because I truly believe the deeper our theology of grace, the richer our experience as we get older. So you go to the end of the Bible, you look in Revelation 19 and you look at the final vision of the Bible in Revelation 21, 1 through 22, 6, and at the end of these two rich doxological, theological, circuit-breaking, off-the-chart experiences, you see John falling down in response to rich theology, wanting even to worship the angel that gave the great declaration. You remember what I'm talking about? Revelation 19, John is seeing the rich theology of the return of God the Son, Jesus, as a bridegroom for his bride. And as he sees this vision given by the angel, it is true truth, as Francis Schaeffer would say. And it goes into his mind. He remembers that this is simply a fulfillment of everything that God has been promising throughout the scripture. 1169 chapters in one book written by 40 authors over 1500 years is building up to what now John sees as the fulfillment of this rich theology of all of history being summed up in Christ and he's overwhelmed when he thinks of the implications of what he sees at the wedding feast of the Lamb. And then he goes on to give us this vision of the coming life we will enjoy in the new heaven and the new earth. And really, you take that last vision of the Bible alone and you, you see it as a zip file, basically bringing together all the promises, every promise that God has made finds its yes in Jesus. And you see John now in his early 80s sitting in it as he is suffering in Patmos loving and still serving the seven churches in Asia Minor and us. And you see this octogenarian not too familiar with his theology that it doesn't buckle his knees. Again, I love that picture of John falling down. It's still good news to him. It's even greater news than it was when he was 70, 60, and 50. We see the same thing in Ephesians, if you would, Turn now with me to Ephesians, the second chapter. And I want us to go through the first 14 verses tonight in a real sense of show and tell, because we're going to see this grace alone theology coming at us through not just a great theologian, but the Apostle Paul, whose heart is so engaged. 
whose imagination is so inflamed. I could not conceive of the book of Ephesians being written by Paul as though he's sitting down in his study, simply smoking his Palestinian pipe with his chariot parked outside, rattling off theological tomes to his amanuensis, writing down everything. I see Paul walking around the room. He cannot sit still as he has given us this theology of grace and his heart is coming alive. How do we know that to be true? We're not going to even read it tonight, but in Ephesians chapter one, verses three through 14, that is one sentence in the Greek. It's as though Paul starts talking about this incredible theology of grace, and there's no place to put a comma, semicolon, dash, or period. It's like he himself, as he's giving us this theology of grace, he's sitting under the cascading waterfalls, and he is an English teacher's nightmare. Can you imagine trying to break down this sentence? We used to diagram sentences in the old day when I used to go to school. We walked 10 miles going and coming. It was always uphill and it was always three feet of snow, as my parents used to say. Now, in the day, we used to seriously diagram sentences on a blackboard. Try to diagram this one. It's not meant to be diagrammed. It's meant to swim in. The end of that incredible opening section that goes to where we will be tonight Paul stops to pray one of many prayers in the book of Ephesians and even shows us this is the interplay of theology and doxology. Paul is retelling the story to the men and women of Ephesus. He's summarizing the theology they learned during the two years he lived among them. But he knows that these things must not just be informing our mind, but inflaming our hearts. So he prays this incredible prayer beginning in verse 15. You remember the prayer, highlights of it. Paul prays that God would would give his people power that we might know the hope of our calling, the glorious inheritance that God has in his saints. Believe it or not, we are God's inheritance. We get a grand inheritance beyond measure, but God says of you and me through the work of Jesus, we are his inheritance. Father, grant them, Paul says. Give them the capacity to connect existentially with the theology of their hope. The fact that Jesus is making all things new. He's not simply making all new things. They're in a grand story of redemption and restoration. Give them an experience of that hope. Help them really to believe, because it may be here, but it's not here, that they belong to you and, and your people, Father, are your treasure. And Lord, give them the capacity to know the exceeding great power that's working in us who believe, the same power that you use to raise Jesus from the dead. Beautiful picture of how prayer sometimes does and alone does take that theology and make it doxology individually and corporately in our congregations. Well, that leads us up to the second chapter. And what I want us to see as we walk through these 14 verses, let me give you three phrases to kind of hang this conversation on. So for those of you that are sequentially oriented, you want suffer under the ADD of your preacher tonight that may chase a lot of redemptive rabbits. At least you know where we're going, right? And I got a glorious clock on the wall, and I love to honor the rest of this evening that we have in front of us. 
Big buffet tonight, a lot of great stuff even yet in front of us. But here are the three phrases I want to use to talk about this passage as we look at a theology of grace as it's declared to us through this inerrant word by a messenger, Paul, who was absolutely undone by it. Three phrases, the gravity of our condition, the grandeur of God's grace, and the greatness of our calling. Once again, these three phrases will, we will see as they unfold through this text. The gravity of our condition, that is going to be so critical for the glorying in the God of all grace. The gravity of our condition, the grandeur of God's grace. And lastly, indeed, the greatness of our calling as lead worshipers and worship leaders. Now, just for a historic footnote, but not just a footnote, but for a core thought within this conversation tonight, when the five solas were put together, here's a, here's a basic understanding of what originally this phrase, solo gratia, meant to the reformers that gave it to us as our heritage. Sola gratia, or grace alone, means grace at the start, grace in the middle, and grace to the end. Grace without mixture, grace without addition, grace without qualification. So clearly did they see that the Bible is telling a story from Eden into the new earth of grace. They even took note of the fact that the very last verse of the Bible, the final punchline, the doxological denouement, the period, the exclamation point is what? Last verse of the entire Bible, not just the last verse of Revelation. The grace of the Lord Jesus be with God's people. There's the whole holy enchilada wrapped up in one big final benediction. J.I. Packer, and I want to put this also as a part of our introduction, segueing now into the first part of our text, beginning at verse 1. J.I. Packer reflecting upon the fact that one of our most beloved hymns is Amazing Grace said, he, he, he proffered this question, so when and why does grace cease to become amazing to us? And here's what he said, when does grace seem, cease to be amazing to us? When we fail to understand and quote, fill in our hearts four great truths that only grace or sola gratia presupposes. Here are the four. The sinfulness of sin, the reality of God's judgment, the inability of man, and the sovereignty of God. Uh, Packer says these, these four realities are not things to get over by grace. It even takes grace to understand the sinfulness of sin and the reality of God's judgment and the inability of men and the sovereignty of God. Let's see how this unfolds in our text, beginning at verse 1. I'm going to read to start with the first three verses. Here's the gravity of our condition, underscoring what Dr. Packer said. It's important for us to understand, increasingly so. Paul writes, as for you, you were dead. You were dead in your transgressions and sins in which you used to live when you followed the ways of this world and of the ruler of the kingdom of the air, the spirit who is now at work and those who are disobedient. Pause there for a moment. 
Just look at those first two verses. What a summary. Now, now this isn't brand new news to the Ephesian believers, but what's Paul doing here? He's underscoring the gravity of our condition because we, we, not only do we not want to forget what we were redeemed from, but we also want to be aware of why we need grace today as much as any day. How does this show up in this text? Well, that's a way of thinking about this text. Reading these words afresh, preparing for our incredible gift of a weekend together, I thought, well, if, if, if any phrase describes the walking dead, this does. Now, guys, some of you are going to have to help this old guy understand the walking dead. I've yet to get hooked into that one, and I'm not trying real hard to. But, you know, if, 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 if any... If any scripture appropriately says, oh, here's what the real walking dead are, notice the way Paul describes us. We were dead in our sins and transgressions and sins in which we used to live. We, we were living though dead. And he shows us three phrases that, that marked us before this God who is rich in mercy entered into our stories Three aspects of the living dead. We were living in the wrong story, serving the wrong king, compelled by the wrong spirit. Living in the wrong story, serving the wrong king, compelled by the wrong spirit. Notice what he says in verse 2. In which you used to live when you followed the ways of this world. There's a, there's a, there's a tragic dead-end story. You want to live in a narrative that ends up badly? Then follow the ways of the world. We all live by story. It's impossible to do life apart from some narration. One of my favorite Will Ferrell movies is, uh, oh gosh, you know, okay, here's the, here's, let me get it here. Uh, Stranger Than Fiction. How many of you have seen the movie Stranger Than Fiction? All right, an incredible movie when you think about it. It's one of the cleanest things Will Ferrell ever did. But, but here's the story, here's the plot line, and it is a, good, it is a cool movie. Uh, you find Will Farrow is a very boring uh, uh, IRS agent standing on a corner. And, and like in many movies, you hear the movie beginning with a narrator. And of course, narrators are not unusual to us. But what this, how this movie unfolds is, Will Farrow begins to realize that this voice is a living voice as someone is trying to write his story. And the movie surrounds him trying to find this novelist who always kills the main character in her novels. So so the struggle is, who's going to write my story? Who's going to write my story? Whose voice ultimately is going to determine where I walk, how I live? And you see, that's the crisis here. It's the crisis of worship. Who or what gains the supremacy of my heart speaks the loudest into my mind, into my, into my volition, into my imagination. And Paul says, this is, this is how dire our condition was. We were not distanced from God. We were disintegrated image bearers of God. Living in the wrong story, serving the wrong king, he says in verse 2, the ruler of the kingdom of the air. We're made to live and kingship. We see that playing out in our culture right now and the panic within our culture, wondering about next Tuesday, how we as worship leaders need to believe and convey Jesus is the ruler of the kings of the earth. And it's not who's going to be sitting in the White House. 
It's who's occupying the throne of heaven tonight and forever. We'll be singing pretty soon in our Advent season about the Messiah Jesus, upon whose shoulder sits the government of the world and of the increase of his peace, there will be, finish it. Hallelujah. I'm sorry, that came out wrong. You don't hyphenate hallelujah with dang. Pray for the preacher. Compelled by the wrong spirit. The spirit who is now at work in those who are disobedient. That doesn't make us at all uh, simply victims of, of a sabotaging spirit. We cooperated with that spirit. See what Paul's doing here, the gravity of our condition. And he does something beautiful next in verse 3. And we see now Paul is not just pointing his finger at anybody in the congregation or those reading this letter. He's giving us this incredible theology of, of our brokenness against the backdrop of our dignity as image bearers of God. And now he includes himself. Look at verse 3. All of us. Don't you love that, that Paul says, me too. I hope as you're leading worship in your church, declaring the truth of the Word of God and the Son of God and the grace of God and the Spirit of God, that it's very apparent to everybody that nobody needs the gospel in your church family more than you. Look what Paul says. All of us also lived among them at one time, gratifying the cravings of our sinful nature and following its desires and thoughts. Like the rest, we were by nature objects of wrath. Here, here again, I love the fact that the inclusiveness for Paul. Paul is a chief repenter in the church. Paul is living out. This rich theology defines me. It's the voice of God who created me for his glory that has reclaimed me by Jesus having diagnosed how critical my need was. And he says to the churches, you're just like me. Quit pretending. See, grace alone prepares us to accept the severity of the diagnosis takes us next into verse four. Now when we shift into the grandeur of God's grace and just appreciate with me. And here's where I love where my brother Isaac started tonight quoting Martin Lloyd-Jones because it was as a student at the University of North Carolina. In fact, here's the story. Let me tell you how, how sovereign God is, Isaac. When I was a senior at Carolina, uh, there was a Christian getting his PhD in classics at North Carolina who happened to be a Christian. And, uh, and we petitioned the classics department at Carolina to, for a class in Quine Greek, group of us. And I struggled with Spanish. So I'm not sure who I thought I was going to be studying Quine Greek. But I had some inclination that might help me get closer to Sola Scriptura and what the Bible actually says. So his name was Wright Doyle. And Wright taught a course in New Testament Greek. And, uh, and in that class, there were about 15 of us. And when we finished, lo and behold, I, I loved the language. And it may be because I didn't have to sit in uh, labs and learn how to order baklava in Greek or anything, but it was getting into the scripture. And he invited me and one more other student to read through the book of Ephesians with them after that one semester of Greek. And, and it was there where I began to see just how big God's butts really are. When you're first studying Greek, you go real slow. And coming to verse 4, 
as Dr. Lloyd-Jones has shown us in his incredible exposition of Ephesians 2. Look at this contrast. Look at this gigantic but, no pun intended, but because of his great love for us, God who is rich in mercy made us alive with Christ even when we were dead in transgressions. It is by grace you have been saved. And God raised us up with Christ and seated us with him in the heavenly realms in Christ Jesus in order that in the coming ages he might show the incomparable riches of his grace expressed in his kindness to us in Christ Jesus. That is not just a mouthful, that is a heartful. And if it is true, it does change everything. Look at the four grand realities jumping out in these verses, which I should mention this to you, by the way. It's not just Ephesians 1, that's one big run-on sentence, verses 3 through 14. But Ephesians 2, 1 through 7 is one sentence in the Greek. And then verses 8 through 10 are one sentence. You kind of get that rhythm in this text. What does Paul talk about in terms of this incredible contrast? Here's the gravity of our need, but but God. Four things, great love, rich mercy, vast power, glorious result. I just love the way Paul is describing our God. Now, Now, where did Paul learn that? Well, he learned it certainly directly by God's Holy Spirit because called to be an apostle, he was given direct revelation in a way that you and I are not. But Paul also, coming from the background, being a member of the Sanhedrin race and the tradition of the scriptures, he, he understands he had a working theology that needed Jesus. And he, when he speaks now of great love, rich mercy, and vast power, he sees all the hints, all the promises, the whole story, this incredibly generous God grabbing a pagan from Ur of the Chaldeans named Abram, calling him out, demonstrating the mathematics of mercy. Abram, count the stars, count the sand, count the dust. I will make of you a nation so great that through the one that will come through your old loins, one day all families on the earth will be blessed. This is how big my story is. See, Paul knew that story. Paul knew about the God who wasn't writing a story of God bless us for and no more. But a God who said that one day I will have a family from every single race, tribe, tongue, and people group. And I will make of you a nation, Abraham, that will be the national womb for the Messiah who will benefit all nations. Paul is writing these words. He's singing it and he knows he's written into that story. He's a character in that story even before he's a carrier of this story. Great love, rich mercy, vast power. Paul says we've been, we who were dead have been raised. We've been, we've been raised already. We who will be raised one day have already been raised in this day. But what I want you to note before we move through the text and I seek to be an honorable steward of the time allotted to me, look at verse 7 because this is something that should require us to simply marinate in this, to begin to think this is how glorious grace is. Look, how big is grace? How profound is grace? How little do we actually understand about grace? Look at verse 7. 
Where did this great love, rich mercy, and vast power go? In order that, here's a, here's a, here's a uh, consequence. God has done this incredible, entirely benevolent act to rebels, fools, and idolaters like me in order that in the coming ages he might show the incomparable riches of his grace expressed in his kindness to us in Christ Jesus. So what Paul is saying this about grace, here's how big grace is. It is by the grace of God, the unconditional, unilateral, monergistic commitment of a God that needed nothing, was never lonely, that you were created. And in full view of how you defied that and despised that and lived in a different story for your own glory, God raised you from your dead. You were completely unable. In fact, every one of us that became a Christian, that has become a Christian, or maybe even will become a Christian tonight, our story is just like that of Lazarus. Remember the day that Jesus made sure that Lazarus was stinking dead? He's four days dead and he's stinking. Then he goes and he stands outside of a tomb and he talks to a dead man. Lazarus, come forth. You ever thought through that one a little bit? Like, Jesus, his ears don't work anymore. That's not the point. The very one who spoke this world into existence raises dead people like you and me. That's what Dr. Mulder said today. It comes from our lips to your ears, but the Spirit applies it. And this is what Paul is declaring here. We are saved by grace, but look at this. Almost in the introduction there, lost the grand umpa of this text. Saved by grace and raised up now. Look, do you look at the language? Raised you up, seated you in Christ, so that in the coming ages, he, what? he might continue to show us, his people, the incomparable riches of grace expressed in his kindness to us in Christ Jesus. Try to wrap your mind and your heart around that one verse. God the Father, the thrice holy God of the universe, who had every right to judge us and condemn us to hell, not only has justified us freely through the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus and the very faith he gives us, but he is committed beginning now and forever to lavish grace upon us that we might really believe he is a kind God. I didn't get that in Sunday school. I didn't get that completely in seminary. I don't completely have it tonight. I'm like Paul on tiptoes with joy. Lord, tell me more. I'm such a weak man. Lord, are, are these, is this pastoral hyperbole? Is this exaggeration? Are you overstating the case to make a point? To which our God says, I do not exaggerate about your need or my son. We pick up on that incredible story we all know. What do I legally have? Do I legally have about five more minutes? Am I okay? I'm not sure the time. We good? Someone say yes or no. All right, all right. Verse eight, for it is by, the second time Paul says, for it is by grace you have been saved through faith. And this not from yourselves. It is the gift of God, meaning both the grace and the faith are gifts of God. He's going to be so clear here. 
Verse 9, not by works so that no one can boast. For we are God's workmanship created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do. Grace is the basis. Faith is the means. Both are gifts. Works are meritless. Boasting is banned. Therefore, who does that leave us now, we who are in Christ? Who are we? We are God's handiwork doing God's good prepared in God's heart. That's who we are as worship leaders. It's what we get to do among the people of God as we write our songs, as we weep, as we dance, as we, as we put ourselves under the word together and, and invite our hearts to this truth and this doxology. That leads me in conclusion to the final of three affirmations of our text, the greatness of our calling. And I simply will apply this in terms of our calling as lead worshipers and worship, worship leaders to the, to the, to the privilege, the, the calling of remembering. Look what Paul does in verse 11. Therefore, remember that formerly you who are Gentiles by birth and called uncircumcised by those who call themselves the circumcision, that done in the body by the hands of men, remember that at that time you were separate from Christ, that at that time you were separate from Christ, excluded from citizenship in Israel, foreigners to the covenants of the promise, without hope and without God in the world. Summary, that would be who were, Paul's saying this, all right, don't ever forget this. Here's who you were. You want to remember. You don't want to wallow in contempt and shame, but you want to understand it is the gravity of our condition that highlights the grandeur of God's grace and our, the greatness of our calling to underscore these things. In essence, Paul says, here's who we were. We were Christless, stateless, homeless, hopeless, and godless. Now we come to another one of those enormous buts. Look at verse 13. Here's where we conclude. But now. In Christ Jesus, you who were once far away have been brought near through the blood of Christ. Let me ask you in conclusion, how near have we been brought? What does grace, what's the nearness factor that grace, God's contraconditional love for us in Jesus. How near are we? Just how near are we? We are so near that God says of us, he has hidden our lives in Christ. And our lives being hidden in Christ. Hear what is true tonight of all of us who are in Christ. All of us who have abandoned every sense of sincerity and work and effort to find our relationship with God, to be in Christ tonight means this. You are, you are enveloped in him. You are so near Christ. God loves you tonight as much as he loves his son, Jesus, and there is absolutely nothing you can do about it. You cannot add to it. You cannot take away from it. You are so near Christ that if you are not going to be raised in the dead in the future, Jesus himself was not raised from the dead. Now, where did I get such a thought as that? You're right, 1 Corinthians 15. So tight is the union of Jesus with his people. So intimate the bond that we have. We are so near, we will never be separated from the love of God. We are so near, we are a family. We are so one in Christ, one day we will live in perfect relationships in the new heaven and the new earth to the glory of God and only then will we 
finally have the capacity to say and will say, it really is true. Once and for all, free from her unbelief. Dear brothers and sisters, fellow worship leaders, doxicologists, theologians in making the alone greatness, the alone graceness of the gospel runs through our theology. May it change us, heal us, free us. This grace takes on not simply the repentable parts of our story, but the repairable parts of our story. I bet a lot of you are like me. There are parts of your stories and wounds and foolishness and idolatries that now that you are justified, the Spirit of God is beginning to show you. I conclude with one thought, just to give you one point. It's been in the last 10 years that this incredible grace has finally given me the freedom to acknowledge that as an eight-year-old little boy, I was sexually molested. A narrative of a story that I pushed down into my toes, repackaged it, tried to heal with a Romans 8:28 band-aid. But to know the wonders of the God of all grace, who is not just taking us to heaven when we die, but pouring heaven into our hearts before the day Jesus finishes making all things new. What is your story? What are your wounds? They don't define you, but they're part of who you are. Let me just pray as we conclude together. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, thank you for the truth of the Word of God. Thank you that the Scriptures are trustworthy and true as we heard this afternoon. And thank you, Father, that they point out the sufferings of the Son of God for us that we might, Lord, truly and appropriately own the gravity of our need both before we met Jesus and the gravity of our need now for this incredible grace. Lord, would you free us these days, these hours together to glory in Christ Jesus, to worship by the Spirit of God and put no confidence in the flesh. Even now, Lord, in this final moment, would you, by your Spirit, drive the theology of grace into our hearts, free us, gladden us, and help us to encourage one another and all the more as we see the great day of Jesus approaching. Together we cry out, hallelujah, what a Savior. Hallelujah, what a salvation in Jesus' name. Amen.